Let's pray. Father, we're thankful to uh, have been physically fed and for the fellowship that uh, we've enjoyed in the time of uh, worship as we sang these beautiful hymns. Now as we, Father, look into your word again, we ask that uh, through your spirit you would speak to each one of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For this afternoon's meditation, please turn with me to uh, 2 Samuel, the third chapter. Actually, 2 Samuel, the second chapter, we'll begin our reading at uh, so I got this mixed up it's first Samuel chapter 2 let's get this straight first Samuel chapter 2 We'll begin our reading at verse 27. First Samuel chapter 2, beginning at verse 27. And there came a man of God unto Eli, Eli's being the priest, and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Did I plainly appear unto the house of thy father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer unto mine altar to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? Wherefore, kick ye at my sacrifice and at mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitations, and honorest thy sons above me, to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Wherefore, the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, Be it far from me, for them that honor me I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days come that I will cut off thine arm and the arm of thy father's house, that there shall not be an old man in thy house, and thou shalt see an enemy in my habitation in all the wealth which God shall give Israel, and there shall not be an old man in thine house forever. And the, and the man of thine, of whom... I shall not cut off from mine altar, shall be to consume thine eyes and to grieve thine heart, and all the increase of thine house shall die in the flower of their age. And this shall be a sign unto thee that shall come upon thy two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas, in one day they shall both die, both of them. And I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in mine heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before mine anointed forever." And it shall come to pass that every one that is left in thine house shall come and crouch to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and shall say, Put me, I pray thee, into one of the priest's offices that I may eat a piece of bread. Let's conclude here at verse 36. This morning we spent some time looking in the scripture about how God transforms our life. What his desire is to transform our life. 
and we looked at ways he speaks into our hearts to help keep us on the, on the right path or to put us on the right path. And this afternoon, with God's help, I'd like to look into some scriptures to see um, some of the things that prevent us from being, experiencing that transformation. I'll maybe use the term, the transformation neutralizers, those things that, that otherwise um, take away from the work that God wants to do in our life. Um, some time ago, I came across a study by uh, the John Hopkins University, which uh, basically trains doctors, and they had a really startling statistic that more than 90% of those that have to have emergency heart surgery, bypass surgery, something, surgery that's necessary to save their life that costs over $100,000, 90% of them do not make any changes that they have been told to make. See, when they have this surgery, they're told that this is a temporary measure. This will not solve your problem. The reason you have a bypass is something to do with your lifestyle, with your diet. And they're counseled how to change that. They get the operation. They go back home. And within two years, 90% of them have not made a change and eventually die from that same uh, issue. And it's startling because even though they're... They're, they've come face to face with their mortality. They've been given advice on how to change, practical, pragmatic advice, and yet they don't take it. And as a result, many of them perish. I look at that from a physical standpoint, I think also from a spiritual standpoint, that, that I'm not sure what the statistics would be, but certainly there would be a, a high percentage of statistics where people would also experience that same difficulty with their spiritual life, that all of us recognize that we are mortal human beings, that we only have a certain amount of time to live, and God has put within us an eternal soul in that if we don't change our direction, that it is a guarantee fatality, spiritual fatality. We see a pattern that we read about here. We're just picking up in part of the story. We don't have time to go through it all, but just to sort of summarize what's happening with, with Eli, Eli being a priest, a high priest, and his sons taking on some of that responsibility, and his sons were uh, sinful. They were not taking care of the responsibility seriously, and they essentially turned their back on God and did all kinds of uh, terrible sins in the office as the priest. And Eli was told of that. We read in, earlier in the second chapter that, that people told him about the uh, behavior of his sons, and he being the high priest as the authority, not just as the father, but also as the high priest to do something about it. He, has, he was the one that had the authority to do, do something about it. And so he goes and talks to his sons, and it says they ignored him. They didn't do anything about it, and they just kept on in that lifestyle of immorality and also um, 
it says that uh, basically kicking at the sacrifice, they were, I'm not sure which part of the scripture it says earlier in the chapter of how they essentially use their position to be able to get an advantage, be able to, I'll use the term really steal from um, steal from the Lord and from other people. And they didn't change. And so the second warning we get here, verse 27, you can almost say this is the alarms as we were talking about before this morning. The first, the first warning came with the report from the other people verse, in, in verse 24. We can see that. Then in verse 27, there's a second warning that comes. There came a man of God unto Eli and confronts him. And makes a very, uh, very, very challenging confrontation where he says that he that Eli is honoring his sons above God. Then he gets a third warning in the next chapter, where Samuel, as the the next priest, in a sense, the prophetic. Uh, things that we read in verse uh, 35, I will raise up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is mine heart, which turned out to be Samuel, and eventually, of course, the most faithful priest of all being Jesus Christ himself, um, to build that sure house. But in the third chapter, we read how Samuel had a dream, and he didn't want to tell it to Eli because it was such a, such a difficult dream concept to, 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 to explain, and Eli in a sense, cornered him and said, you need to tell me regardless of how bad the dream is. And so he told him a, a significant judgment against him. But first I'd like to focus on what I will say the God's heart was for Eli and his family to be transformed as well. He did not want the judgments that he was pronouncing uh, to come to fulfillment and wanted Eli and his sons to change. But it says that he honored his sons above God. What does it mean to honor something above God himself? I think there's a number of different ways that we could think of that. One is that we take the easy way out, the pain, the least painful way out of a uh, choosing the easy path over God's path. See, Eli knew what he had to do. What, what he should have been doing is take them off the priesthood. It would have been embarrassment to, to, to the community around that his sons were not following. But that was the authority that he had, in a sense, to carry out the discipline that was necessary to preserve the holiness of that office. And yet he didn't do it because that was harder than just letting things go the way they were going. Taking the easy path is, I think, um, well, if we, I think it's Newton's second law or maybe it's third law of the thing that takes the least path of resistance. That is kind of the nature is like that. And we as human nature have that same difficulty that we take the path of least resistance. And that's not always the right path. 
especially if we know we are in the wrong or we need to make things right or, or something has to change in our life, the easiest thing to do is just let things slide, let it continue in the way it goes instead of making a hard call and saying, God, I'm going to do the right thing. You are asking me to do this. Please help me make that change even though it's harder for me to do that. Sometimes even as believers, we're convicted to do something. For example, if we're, co we're convicted to, to be more generous and uh, to give of our first fruits to the Lord's work, and we take the easy path out because we say, well, it's easier just to leave the, the, the money in my wallet. Or maybe it's about time we're convicted to serve the Lord in a particular way, but that requires sacrifice. The easiest path is to just not have to step out of our comfort zone and do something that we are being called to do. Or we're being called to be spiritual leaders in our home as a father, but also as a mother. And especially those of you that work outside the home, when you come home, you know, it's been a tiring day. It's easier just to kick up your feet and put it on the coffee table and pick up the remote or the tablet and, and to, to, to focus on something else rather than the harder work of being a spiritual leader in the home and looking for ways to connect with our family in ways that we can um, not only live life together as a community of family and, and a wider as a community of believers, and in a sense, we're honoring our own time and comfort above what God has called us to do. Or perhaps as, as, as we worship together, many people would say, I'm too busy to do those things. In a sense, honoring their time over the time to worship the Lord collectively as we are commanded to do. Or honoring our place of comfort Comfort zone, being in our comfort zone rather than stepping out in faith and doing something that God has called us to do. These are all different ways that we can, that, that we, that I believe we're guilty to some degree of honoring those things over honoring God himself and what Eli himself was guilty of doing. Now when God pronounces these uh, judgments, uh, Many times, you look throughout the, the, the scripture, the pattern is God will look at the direction, whether it's the children of Israel going, or in this case of Eli himself and his family, whether it's an individual or it's a, or it's a collective group of people, and he looks at the direction that they're heading and will pronounce judgments if they continue on that path. It's not because he wants them to be judged, he doesn't want them to experience those consequences, but he wants them to recognize that that's the end of that road and desires for them to change. And we see many times evil kings in Israel, which were going on the wrong path, and terrible judgments were pronounced, and they repented. And what did God do? He not only forgave them that, but also all of those judgments that were pronounced were removed because they repented and they turned around and went back towards God. That, that is what God's heart is, truly to not have those consequences and those judgments carried out. And this is what he desired in Eli's household as well. It was not a sure thing because had they repented 
God would have had compassion and those uh, terrible judgments that were pronounced here would not have come to pass. But if we look at Eli's response, we see a response, basically a passivity, passiveness is a default response. I think we've all made that uh, experience where uh, we vegetate, being, being basically um, knowing we need to do something. If you're in school, you know you have an exam coming up, and, 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 and rather than being studious and studying for it, we're passive because we just want to chill out. We want to rest. We want to, and, and there is certainly a time for those things, but being passive in the important things in life is, I would say, really not an option. The consequences of that are, are too great passivity. If we think of somebody who's passive, um, really doesn't get anything done in this life. If they're passive, they don't apply themselves to their school, to their work, to whatever they're um, responsible for, the results are dismal. They're sad. We see is Eli responds with passivity in the sense that he didn't do anything about it. And so in chapter 3, as I mentioned earlier, we see in the last several verses of, of chapter 3 where Eli called Samuel and said in verse 16, Samuel, my son, and he answered, here I am. And he said, what is the thing that the Lord has said unto thee? I pray thee, hide it not from me. God, do to thee, and more also, if thou hide anything from me and all the things that he saith unto, unto thee. Now imagine Samuel is a young boy, that's a pretty hard thing to say, to tell somebody the message that now he says. And Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, he being Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. You think, well, that seems to be a faithful response, but that's not what God wanted him to respond with. In a sense, Eli's like shrugging his shoulders Oh, well, I guess if God says that, then that's just the way it is. But that's not what God wanted. God wanted him to respond to that warning and to do something about it rather than responding with pass, being passive, the lack of response there. And at times, we're all tempted with that response, being passive, Instead of doing something we know we should be doing, we'll pick up the remote or we'll log on and watch some mindless viral video that goes there that just satisfies for the moment but doesn't change the direction that we're going. And that's really what God is trying to do to get our attention when the world and the enemy himself will ensure there's so many distractions, we're so busy with all these things that sap our strength that we don't we don't have the strength or the time we're too busy as it were to respond to the most important things in life that's often what happens with uh, with with parasites that infect the human body see the parasites themselves don't kill the person the parasites suck out the 
important nutrients that our body requires to live and to thrive sucks it out and slowly kills the body physically. And in a sense, that's what so many of the distracting activities that we have, in a sense, are parasitic. They suck away our time and our energy, that we don't have the passion left to really put it where God calls us to put it. To be passionate about kingdom things and about people and about relationships and about things that last, especially on into eternity. And so that's one of the enemy's tactics is to use this um, passivity as a way to keep us from carrying out what God has called us to do. Another way that we... um, have experienced the um, difficulty of getting something done is through procrastination, putting something off for another time. Now is not a good time. It's not that I'll never get to it, but not right now. I'll, I'll, I'll do that later. And procrastination breeds procrastination, that tomorrow is a better time, and then tomorrow another, breeds another tomorrow, and it continues on. But, the, but I think the most insidious thing about procrastination is that it gives us the feeling that we are responding. What I mean by that is that we, we don't say we'll never do it. Think of, for example, I remember as a teenager uh, being convicted by the word and desiring to respond to it, and the enemy came, comes along and says, well, of course God exists, of course you need to repent, of course you need to do these things, but it's not really convenient right now. Just put it off. Do it next year. You're a little bit young right now. And then one year turns into the next year and turns into the next year, and this procrastination gains momentum. Much in the same way as we know perhaps we need to diet we need no other health requires. We need a change in our diet to get healthier. We need to perhaps exercise more, especially at the time of the beginning of the year as New Year's resolutions are passed. And it's easy to procrastinate. Well, today I'll just have this extra dessert. That, that doesn't really matter. Or, oh, I'll skip my exercise routine today. And in a sense, it doesn't matter for that day. It's absolutely right. It didn't make a difference. The fact that I ate an extra piece of dessert and didn't exercise that day, if I get on the scale, I see zero difference. No change. And so I do the same thing the next day and the next day and the next day. And it's the pattern of that procrastination, of putting off the harder decision. It's the accumulation of those things that eventually lead to my poor health. And the same is true spiritually. We put off, we start being lax in our scripture reading, in our prayer, in our devotion, our relationships, in our church attendance, and in the things that God says. And the first time we do it, the ceiling, the sky doesn't fall. Or the first time we uh, take a step in the direction we shouldn't go, again, God in his mercy doesn't allow our life to fall apart. But it's the continual procrastination of doing the right thing and doing, and in, in its place, doing the easy and the wrong thing that this starts to build up over time. The difficulty, though, is that the reverse is true as well. 
the time where we decide to make a diet change or we begin to exercise the first day, we see no difference. And the next day we do the same thing. And if we look on the scale and we see that, that it hasn't really changed over time, it's easy to become discouraged and easy to give up. But we know that if we persist in those things, eventually it makes a difference. Even the small things, eventually they add up to make a difference. It's those decisions every day that help, that, 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 that uh, form the habits of tomorrow and that, eventually, that, that, that set the direction for our life. And as I was thinking of the scripture I was trying to reference this morning, I had forgotten what the reference was. It's in Hebrews, the third chapter, verse 7, which says, Sorry. Where the scripture says, <clears throat> Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocations, in the day of temptation, the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work for forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, said that they do always err in their heart. They have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest." Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another, how often? Daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. This is why the scripture is talking about this regular occurrence of daily, a daily habit that helps keep us on the path towards the Lord. And that the best time is to do it now, to make a conscious decision that I will do what God says to me today. And when we do that day after day after day, over time there is a change, a remarkable transformation and change that takes place. But only if we overcome the spirit of passivity, overcome the temptation of procrastination. It's only then that we experience the work of God in our life. There is a happy ending to that account, the John Hopkins University study about those that 90% of them did not make lifestyle changes and as a result perished from the thing that could have so easily been avoided. They made a change and instead of just giving information to those patients as they were preparing for the operation and then uh, giving them things to read and sending them off home, they created support groups that met once or twice a week that helped those people make the lifestyle changes. And after two years, the contrast was astounding. 80% of those participants in those that went to those groups had made the necessary lifestyle changes that altered the course of their physical health. Imagine that. One hand that had been practiced for years and years up to that point, 90% failure rate. In other words, a 
uh, success rate. They changed the approach and it now turned from a 10% success rate to an 80% success rate. The difference was accountability in a small group in a way that are on a, on, it wasn't a daily basis, but certainly on a weekly basis, where they met to talk about the difficulties they were having in their lifestyles, shared ideas together, and were mutually accountable one to another. And that made all the difference. It's no surprise then, if we look at the scripture and we see the model of discipleship that Jesus put in place, that it's not just meant to be a corporate gathering as we gather together here and we listen to the word of God, but the real practice of becoming a follower of Christ is to become a disciple, which means that we enter into a relationship not only with God himself, but with others, other brothers and sisters in Christ, where we have a way of connecting one with another on a regular basis and can fulfill the scripture which says that the older men ought to teach and mentor the younger men. And the scripture which also says, that's the scripture in 2 Timothy I believe it's the third chapter. And then the scripture in Titus, which talks about the older women teaching the younger women. This mentorship, mentor-mentee relationship, modeled by Jesus himself, commanded by the scriptures and the epistles, that we follow through with that. This is why, as parents, we, as the saying goes, there's more caught than taught. It's not that we sit down with our kids every day and uh, let's have a lesson, a two-hour lesson on the scripture. It doesn't happen that way. And it's not necessary to happen that way because God has designed the relationships within the family that these truths are passed down in our actions, in how we make decisions. They observe the way we react to things and the things that we prioritize, and they begin to emulate those things. And yes, of course, there has to be conscious teachings, conscious teaching of the Word of God in our home, but it's also through the mentorship as parents as we take our children through that, but also as a church family. And why in, in, in our church we've um, put in place a mentor program to pair up those who desire to seek the Lord with an older brother or an older sister, if it's a young woman that's desiring to seek the Lord, to help them do that in a practical way. Because seeking the Lord is not just happening on a Sunday. It doesn't just happen one, at one point in time. It, it needs a, a daily pattern that needs to be established in order to be successful. Because if we don't do that, eventually we, as we seek the Lord, we find there are difficulties and we become easily discouraged. And if there's nobody to come alongside us to put their arm around us and help us through those things, to pray with us, to wrestle with some of the concepts as they apply to our own lives, the enemy is, success, is, is far more successful at dividing and conquering by taking us out, keeping us alone and isolated, and then able to discourage us from continuing. The remedy is to 
follow that model of discipleship, to combat the passivity, the procrastination, the confusion of feelings with actual action. Because when we have those relationships, there's accountability there. And someone to pray with us and for us to help us to grow and to mature. And so if there are those of you in the audience here that desire to grow as a leader, as someone in their profession that uh, if you're going to school or if you're in the workforce already, the best way to learn is to learn from a journeyman or to learn from somebody who is more senior than you you will learn far faster that way and become far more effective. And the truth, that truth is true in a spiritual sense as well. If you desire to grow your spiritual person, the best way to do that is to also become, seek out a mentorship relationship. And through that, those transformation neutralizers that we talked about, the choosing the easy way rather than God's way, the choosing the passive, pass, choosing passivity and choo- or, or falling into the rut of procrastination, all of those things can be overcome. Not only can we avoid the shipwreck that Eli himself experienced, but we experience the victory that comes that God desires for each one of us to have, that we, as a disciple of Christ himself, can be overcomers and experience the victory in this life and also on into eternity in God's presence as we experience that and desire that. And this would be my prayer that all of us would desire to follow the examples that we have in the scripture and the pattern that is left for us so that we can be overcomers. Amen.